Hey everyone, this is The Fullest, a new podcast all about what it really means to live life to the fullest. How it's not what we might think, how it's definitely not what we've been sold, and how it's better than we could ever ask, dream, or imagine in Jesus. So if you want to know what it really means to thrive and flourish in this life, you're in the right place. I'm glad you're here, and I'm excited to go after it with you. It's time for episode two of The Fullest, uh, which I guess is technically episode one since the first episode was just an introduction. But wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I really am so glad that you decided to make this a part of your day. It means a lot and I am super thankful for it. I want to say up front, I am really excited about this episode because I have a special guest and he's got so much incredible wisdom and insight for us. It's going to be immensely helpful. Uh, But before we get into it, I wanted to give you a heads up that my goal for this podcast is to post one of these episodes every other Friday. I forgot to mention that in episode one. Um, so if you if you want to go ahead and subscribe on Spotify or Apple or you just want to check back in every other week, every other Friday is what you can expect. And I hope that it's helpful for you. That being said, I am, again, really excited about this particular episode uh, because in it, I get to have a conversation with J.R. Vassar. And J.R. is a man who's had a a really massive impact on my life through his writing and specifically through his book, Glory Hunger. One of the things that's going to come up over and over again in this podcast is the fact that there are several intrinsic needs that have to be met in each of us before we can ever get to a place of contentment or happiness or rest or whatever word you you know, would want to throw in there to describe life and life to the fullest, uh, life feeling the way it should feel. And what I realized several years ago while reading JR's book is that glory is actually one of those vital intrinsic needs. In other words, if we don't get our need for glory met and satisfied, we can't live life to the fullest. It's impossible. So I want to talk about glory with all of you today, but rather than just getting his book out and reading it to you, which I totally could have done, I thought it would be so much better and so much more helpful to have JR come on and talk through glory with us. And he was so kind and and gracious to make that happen. Uh, We had this conversation over Zoom, so I apologize for maybe the quality not being uh, 100% Uh, top-notch, but hopefully it won't be too distracting for you and the message will come across. Uh, But with all of that being said, let's go ahead and jump into it. Here is my conversation about glory with J.R. Vassar. J.R., thanks so much for taking some time to jump on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. How's quarantine been for you? Not too bad. Uh, We've all kept each other alive and uh, it's been good family time. Uh, our church is really, we've really emphasized prayer and our church has really taken some massive leaps, um, quantum leaps in, in cultivating a community of prayer. So it's been good. Good. Quarantine. What have you guys done as far as cultivating a prayer? <clears throat> yeah. So we, um, 
we, we emphasize a thing called 30, 20, 10, and we encourage people to spend 30 minutes in the morning uh, in personal prayer. And then we do a live stream 20 minute prayer room uh, Monday through Friday. So it's, it's 20 minutes of worship, word and prayer. And uh, we walk people through guided prayer and then we encourage them to spend 10 minutes at night with their families closing out the day in prayer. And so we've had a lot of folks really latch onto that and get real serious about 30, 20, 10, making it a rhythm in their life and trying to steward some of the margin that some people have. Not everybody has a lot of margin in this time. There's some people who are working harder than ever, but those that have the margin, we've tried to really say, Hey, fill that margin up with some really good stuff because typically uh, you're, your downtime, your idle time will get filled up with your weakness if you're not mm -hmm. careful. So we just encourage people to fill that time up with something that's meaningful. That's awesome. That's really encouraging. Um, well, JR, you, uh, you wrote Glory Hunger, and uh, Glory Hunger has been uh, massive for me as we've just been talking about. It's, it's one of my favorite books that I've read in the last few years. And I, I share it with everyone. It's in our little lobby area at the church too. So you guys are the ones, you guys are the ones buying it. Good. That's yeah. good. Good, to, good to finally figure out who that is. <laughs> it's all right. We don't need commission or anything. Um, but your, your book has been so impactful for me and you gave me language for a need that I didn't even know I had. And it's the, the need for glory, this intrinsic need to be seen and celebrated and uh, what hit me as I read your book is that if I don't get that need met, then I can't live life to the fullest. And so uh, I wanted to talk about glory with you and kind of lay out what it is, uh, why we need it, where this desire comes from, uh, where we typically go to try to meet the need, and then uh, how Jesus shows us a better way. So let's yeah. just start off, if you wouldn't mind, with uh, what in the world is glory? Because uh, when usually when we think of glory, we think of God. But what is glory, and uh, why is it so important? By the way, the way you just outlined this whole discussion is a better outline than my book was. I, where were you? <laughs> where were you when I was trying to come up with all this stuff? <laughs> uh, yeah, the 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 concept of glory it's a it's a pretty rich word. You know, there's a lot of facets to it. In the Old Testament, it carries that idea of fatness or weightiness, a sense of profound significance. That God has glory like no one else has glory. In fact, he has a glory that's in a category on, on, a, on his own. Um, he doesn't share his glory with anyone else. God is the most significant, weighty, meaningful, um, brilliant being in the universe. Um, so it has that idea of something that God possesses in a, in a really unique way that no one else does. Um, and in the New Testament, we kind of see that same kind of concept, but it has... You know, it also has this idea of acclaim and, and praise and brilliance and shining and brightness. And so this idea of glory is, is uh, a, if, if you want to call it a desire, because you can talk about having the possession of it, but, but the desire for glory is that desire for a sense of significance, a sense of weightiness, a sense of shining, kind of standing out, having um, a bit of recognition and praise and acclaim and uh and it's that's kind of when we talk about giving glory to god we're talking about giving acclaim giving praise ascribing to god what he's due what he's worth um 
but there's also a drive in us for that. We have a drive to, to have a sense of weightiness, a sense of importance, to shine, if you will, um, to have a bit of uh, approval and acclaim and affirmation spoken over us. So glory is something that God possesses in a unique way in and of himself, but it's also something that I think we're made for. Like he, he, he intends for us to know that, you know, to know mm. what it means to have a measure of, of glory. It says in Psalm 8 that he, when he makes humanity, he crowns him with glory and honor. So there's something unique and beautiful about a human being that we're kind of made for glory. You talk about how we don't just love to, to see greatness, but we want to be seen as great. And, yeah. Uh, that really stood out uh, to be seen and celebrated as great. Yeah. And I, I think we can all attest to that. You know, I think it's one thing with, when someone who we perceive to be below us compliments us or praises us. It's another thing when someone who on the social hierarchy of things tends to be above us when they recognize us, when they say something to us, you know, if I get a compliment from a sermon from, you know, a, a seventh grade boy, that's great. I mean, it's encouraging that a seventh grade boy is listening. But man, if Tim Keller came up to me and said, that was brilliant, it would just like, it would, it would just flood my soul with so much sense of, of approval and, and that I'm being seen and I'm being mm. recognized. And so there's, there's a way that that can be sinfully twisted, mm. but there's also something in us that's kind of, there's an ache for that. Yeah. And I'm not sure that ache is a sinful ache. I think it can be met in sinful ways, but I don't think it's a sinful ache. Yeah. How does that relate to uh, what C.S. Lewis uh, described as the inner ring? Yeah. So Lewis talked about uh, there's, there's this inner ring that we desire. We kind of want to get on the inside. He, he, he uses the example of someone at work who, uh, you know, the language is, man, we really need to get this guy on this project. We really need his thought. We really need his perspective. And, uh, and, and when you get invited in, you're so excited. Uh, sure, you're going to have to get up your Saturday morning. Uh, but the only thing worse than giving up your Saturday morning is having your Saturday morning free because you don't matter. And he talks about we really want to get in that inner ring. But when we get in that inner ring, we discover there's another ring. We got to get in that inner ring. And, uh, and yeah, that, that's part of this drive we have. We want, we want to be seen. We want to be recognized. We want to be approved we want to be affirmed we want to feel wanted we want to feel needed and where all that goes really wrong is when we start looking for that approval that affirmation that acclaim in the in the wrong places that's where it turns into something that becomes a horrible master over us hmm. are you familiar with lecrae the oh yeah yeah hip-hop legend uh, christian hip-hop legend yeah. yeah, he has uh, he has this uh, biography, autobiography, maybe biography. I'm not sure if he wrote it or not, but it's uh, it's kind of like his life story. And he, he talks about being nominated for a Grammy. Uh, and I can't remember what the Grammy was now, but uh, he was nominated with all of the legends like Eminem and Drake and like real rappers, you know, uh, the secular rappers. And so it wasn't a Christian Grammy. It was the first time he had been nominated for a real Grammy. And so if anyone had kind of made it into the inner ring now, it was, it was Lecrae. And so he goes to this party for all of, I guess, the people involved, all the celebrities and artists and everything. And 
he talks about how in the center of the party, there's a gazebo. And in the gazebo, it's Jay-Z and Rihanna and Kanye. And it's like the inner, inner ring. Hmm. And he talked about how everyone outside of that ring was, they were, they were famous people. They had been nominated for Grammys, but they weren't in the inner ring. And everyone was trying to just get around the gazebo. And he's like, someone just standing there just watching it and kind of like, almost mocking it internally, but then acknowledging the fact that he really wanted to be in there. Wow. And we all, we all have that desire, just like you said. So where does that desire come from? Because you, you laid this out for me in a way that I had never heard before. And this was an epiphany for me. Where in the world does this desire come from and why is it not necessarily a bad desire? The way I talked about it in the book is this, um, it's just a creation story when God creates Adam and Eve and he puts them in the garden and he looks at all that he's made. And now that they're there, uh, he says that this is very good. And so you have these two people who are standing in this beautiful garden in a universe that this God has made that is beautiful and it's breathtaking. And there's, you know, quasar clusters of stars and mountains and God looks at them and says, now this is very good. And when God pronounces that, on them, he basically bestowed praise and honor and glory on them as his image bearers living in this world. They had the approval, they had the favor, uh, they had the acclaim of God upon their life. And then when they rebel against God, they sin against God, that image of God was not, it, it's not gone, it's still there, it's defaced, it's marred. They're not what they're supposed to be anymore. And now they are under a curse. So they went from being under this approval of God to now they really feel the disapproval of God. They have sinned and they have broken his law. And that alienation from the God of the universe who pronounced favor and acclaim over them, uh, that alienation kind of robbed them of that. And so we try to get that back in so many other ways. So the legitimate aid for glory is a product of being made in the image of God and having originally on humanity, having God's approval in his, his statement of you are very good. That's a verdict that God handed down on us. And now we have a different verdict. And that verdict is that we are guilty and we are, um, we're fallen and we're wrecked and we're still image bears, but that image is marred in us. And so we work really hard to try to get that verdict back on our life from numerous different ways. Mm. Uh, so that, that's kind of where I think that it, that's in, innate for us. It's something that we, that we deep down are hungry for and we desire. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is so profound. And, um, and like you just said, you know, if a seventh grader comes and tells you you're great, doesn't mean much. If Keller comes and tells you you're great, it means everything. How much more than, you know, the, the God of the universe looking at you and saying very good. That's, yeah. that's really profound. You talk about the courtroom of, of opinion and the verdicts and how many, how many different courtrooms of, of opinion we try to find uh, verdicts of very good from on a daily basis and, and fail and how empty that leaves us. Could you expound a little bit on that? Yeah, every, every one of us from personal experience uh, can attest to the fact that we have a tendency to live our lives mindful of how people are viewing us and mindful of the conclusions and judgments they're drawing 
on us. Um, I remember when we lived in New York, uh, it, it, it's funny just to watch people walk down the street because when they walk past a building, it's a glass building that's very reflective, they would just kind of always check themselves out, always <laughs> looking at themselves as they go because they want to make sure they look good. And, yeah. um, you know, we, we care about how we look. We care about how we sound. We care about how successful we are. We care about, um, do we, you know, are, are we watching the right things on Netflix? Are we up to speed on everything, you know? Um, because we're just very aware that our lives are being lived out in the court of human opinion. And we really want to positive verdict from people over our lives. And so we'll work really hard just to hear people say, uh, you're okay. You're approved. You're affirmed. That's why kids give into peer pressure so much as they just can't bear the thought of being ostracized or, being outside the that inner ring or having that verdict on them that they're not acceptable, uh, they're not okay, they're not cool, they're not good, whatever whatever the word they're desperate for, but we we are just super conscious of people's opinions about us, and because we want desperately for people to approve us, we live as slaves to their opinions, and uh, it's funny because you know people are so fickle. What pleases them one moment won't please them the next. And what pleases one group doesn't please the other. And so when a person lives for the opinions and approval of other people, they never really, they never really have a sense of who they are. They're always in flux because they're, they're performing. They're just performers. When you live for the opinions of people, you just turn into a performer. And I think social media has trained us to enter into life situations as a performer. And then, um, live out the act and then report on it uh, and then wait to see how the, how the audience applauds, you know, mm. and we're just people who love, we love glory. We love applause. We love the high opinions of people. And so we live slaves uh, to that. And the only way to get free from that is I've said it like this, when the opinion of the one who matters most matters most to you, then you get free from your, from all those lesser opinions that you're living for. Yeah. I think that's why the apostles are constantly trying to motivate us with future glory, with the fact that Jesus is coming back. And if you confess him before men, he's going to confess you before the angels and before his father. And the idea that you're constantly tempted not to confess Jesus before people because of the ridicule and the shame and the cost that it might bring. And Jesus is saying, look, you've got to live for the right opinion and the right approval. There's coming a day where the only thing people are going to care about is, man, I hope Jesus is pleased with me. That's the only thing they're going to care about. And uh, Jesus is saying, there is a glory coming. There's, an, a, there's a, a verdict coming when the Son of God looks upon those that have trusted him and been faithful to him. Mm-hmm. And he confesses them before his Father, before the angels of heaven. And Jesus says, we're going to shine like the sun in the kingdom of our father. So all your desire for glory and shining and standing out and people speaking well of you, it's all going to get fulfilled in that day. Um, And so we have to live for that. We live under that now in the gospel, but we live for that uh, day when we consider the the future coming of Jesus. Yeah. And that's uh, the hope of glory. And the weight of glory that, again, Lewis wrote about as well, which is such a profound essay. Um, Too bad he's dead. 
and we, we can't bring him on you here can, for it. Right. You wouldn't even need to interview me. You'd be talking to C.S. Lewis. But I want to circle back to, to the bondage a little bit because I, I don't think uh, most of us are aware of how, how much enslaved we are to uh, this like, cycle. You call it the Sisyphean cycle of uh, chasing glory, getting it, needing to chase it again, you know, losing it. What is it about glory that enslaves us? And I'm sure there are people listening who are, are seen in Celebrating Escape. They're very talented. They are wealthy. They're upperly mobile. They're educated or whatever. They're getting their promotions and their jobs. They probably don't even perceive the bondage that their pursuit of glory is. So uh, could you talk a little bit about that, that endless cycle and that endless search? And I know you used just a, a really powerful illustration of uh, Sisyphus as well, if you wouldn't mind kind of expounding on that a little bit. Yeah. Um, so that whole tragic story of Sisyphus who is cursed by the gods and has to push a boulder up the hill. And once he gets to the top of the hill, that boulder rolls all the way down and he's got, and it's just like, that's what his whole life is confined to is rolling this boulder up the hill only to have it fall down upon him and having to start all over and trying to gain glory for yourself, trying to get enough approval from people, enough acceptance of people, enough acclaim from people to satisfy your need for meaning and value and worth and identity it it really is enslaving you know keller keller wrote that book the um the freedom of self-forgetfulness and in that mm. book he talks about that interview that madonna had with vogue where she says what motivates her is a fear of being mediocre and she's accomplished so much but every time she has an accomplishment she can only enjoy it for so long because she is then afraid that she might become mediocre again. And it just drives her and drives her into more and more performance. And that's kind of what that Sisyphus cycle is, is like, no matter how good I do, there's always the fear. If I get people's acclaim, there's a good chance I might lose it. So I got to keep the performance up. Hmm. Um, so there's this fear that I might never attain it. That just keeps driving you. If I ever do attain it, there's a fear I might lose it. And that keeps, keeps you imprisoned. And Jesus just invites people. He says, look, if you're, if you're weary and you're heavy laden, you can come to me and you can find rest for your souls. And so much of this pursuit of glory is tied into this idea of identity and really understanding the deepest sense of who we are, uh, the, the meaning, the value, the identity, the significance that we long for, which we try to gain that by building an identity. And it really is bondage. Um, you just can't really feel free. You, you, you have to always be on. Uh, you have to constantly succeed. Uh, you got to make up for your failures. Um, if you didn't, if you didn't nail it that time, you better nail it the next time uh, because everybody's watching. And, and I think social media has only intensified it because according to everybody's social media, they're nailing it. They're doing great. And so you, <laughs> you've got to do great. Yeah. Um, and so all that's just, it, it gets, it gets to be a lot of bondage. And, you know, again, the solution to that is like, is not to say, well, just stop thinking about glory and meaning. And I, you know, it's to say, it's like Lewis said, he goes, you know, he was talking about heaven, but he said, if there's an ache in your heart for something, nothing in this world can satisfy, then it's a good indication you're made for another world. Yeah. And my take is that if, if there's this universal ache in all of us for glory, there's got to be some way. Uh, it's got to mean that we're probably made for it. And how do we get it satisfied? 
Yeah. And the way we get it satisfied is, you know, is through the gospel. And that's what sets us free to have the fact that Jesus took all of our negative verdict on himself and mm. all of our shame and all of our failure to be glorious. And he took it upon himself and he died in our place and rose from the dead. And through faith in him, the scripture says that we can be declared righteous before God. Mm. He can look upon us and say, I approve of you, not because of your works, but because of Christ's righteousness credited to you. I affirm you, I approve you, I accept you, I declare you right and okay, and I choose to delight in you. And when that verdict is just ringing in our ears, that because, not because of what I do, because of what Christ has done for me, the God of the universe has given his stamp of approval upon me. I didn't earn it, I can't lose it. I didn't win it, it was given to me as a gift by God's grace. And so it's learning how to walk in the approval of God learning how to walk in the verdict of God. Again, when the opinion of the one who matters most starts to really matter to me, uh, then I get free from my addiction to everyone else's opinion. Mm. And granted, I wrote the book five years ago and I haven't read it since. So uh, <laughs> it's a miracle of God even remembering this stuff, man. Way to go, man. I know. <laughs> uh, you're not quoting yourself every Sunday, I guess. Um, <laughs> no. So, yeah, you know, what you're talking about with identity is, the, is such a crucial element. And, you know, uh, Ephesians 1 lays out our identity with all of these in Christ, in Christ, in Christ statements of, of this union that, uh, that we have with Jesus. And the result of the union with Christ is now his identity is our identity, not as, as his deity, but his perfection, his holiness, and his blamelessness. And I was thinking about, even as you were just talking, the first Adam is the one who had glory and lost it for all of us. And then Jesus, who is the second Adam had glory and gave it up so that he could uh, bring us into it. And I think about when he was being baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist and the uh, Holy spirit falls on him. Heaven opens up and God looks down and says to his son, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And it's this glory that he's now giving his son and it's this approval and this praise and this honor in front of everyone there. And what Jesus was doing wasn't just being baptized, but he was, he was paving the way for that to be spoken over all of us as well. And so now in Christ, when God sees us, he, see, he sees his son. And now that this is my son with whom I'm well pleased that he spoke over Jesus, he now speaks over us. That's just an incredible truth. Yeah. And it's the, the thing I love about that is that Jesus hadn't preached a sermon. He hadn't healed anybody. He hadn't performed any miracles. He ministers out of that affirmation, mm -hmm. not for that affirmation. You know, he, he's not trying to earn anything from the father by his performance. Mm -hmm. He goes out and does his ministry from the approval and affirmation of, of his father, uh, which is why he could handle slander which is why he could handle rejection from so many people because he lived with the voice of his father. This is my son. I love him. I'm pleased with him. That's what drove him in his life and ministry. He says, I always do what pleases the father. I don't do anything on my own initiative. I do whatever I see the father doing. Uh, his ministry was such a response to his father's love for him and the, the mission the father gave him to do. Is it even possible for us to love and, and serve people if we need glory from them? Yeah, I, I don't think so. And I, 
Uh, you can't love someone that you're wanting these things from. So for example, if, if I need your approval, if I really need your approval for a sense of my own okayness, I could never confront you on something in your life that's hindering your own flourishing because it would put, it would put my, uh, my acceptance before you in jeopardy. Uh, if I need you to approve me and affirm me, I don't want to do anything that would put me out of sorts with you. But if I care more about your flourishing, um, if I'm so content in the love of God, in the approval of God, in my acceptance of God, I'm so content in that I don't need your approval and your acceptance to, to shore up my sagging sense of self then I can actually say really hard things to you that are for your good. And how many people do we know that refuse to speak the truth to people because they're afraid of what those people might think about them. Mm -hmm. So you really can't, you really can't love, you can't love someone well if you desperately need their acceptance and approval. It just doesn't happen that way. Yeah. That's going to take, I think a lot of time uh, of meditation to really sink in. When you think about the, the greatest commandment is to love God, and to love people. And can we do those things if we need something from people for not resting in the love of God? And yeah, like you said, I don't, I don't think we can. And um, yeah, Lewis, I think Lewis hit on that too, on the way to glory, as he's saying uh, in so many words, you know, you, you need to want glory for people more than you want glory from people. Mm. And you can't do that if, if you have a glory deficiency in yourself. If you're like, if you, if you don't, if you don't live with the very good of God ringing in your ears, if you don't live with his favor and approval, it's going to be hard for you to really want glory for other people. It's going to be hard for you to want just in this life, want people to, I'll, I mean, I told this story in the book, I'll tell it again to my own shame, but I remember in college when I was being invited back to, it, it's funny, I, the church that I, I was a student ministry intern at Memorial Baptist Church in Grapevine. That church is now Church of the Cross, and 20-something years later, I ended up coming wow. back to be a pastor. Wow. And, uh, but, but I remember when I was an intern, I would come in and preach at our student ministry, and no one would ever respond. No one would ever get saved. And um, finally, my youth minister said, hey, do you got any friends at Dallas Baptist that might want to come and preach the gospel? Maybe they'll listen to them. <laughs> and uh, so I brought in this guy, and he preached the most simple, basic, just plain Jane gospel presentation and like 11 kids get saved. And, <laughs> and I'm like, you know, I'm like weeping. And my friend brings me up this man, this guy loves you guys so much. He's just been praying for you. He's so excited you're being saved. And that's true. But there was a part of me that was like, why didn't God use me like that? You know, it's like, I want God to do great things. I just want everyone to know he did them through me. <laughs> I, I want to be the vessel, you know? Yeah. And that was when I, really, I mean, that was early on when I was a freshman or a sophomore in college. That's when I came to grips with the fact that, man, I've got some real sinful ambition. Some, and I, there, there's an old Pentecostal pastor. He's not around anymore, but his name was Derek Prince. He died back in like 2003. And he would always say, I think the single greatest issue in the church is the thirst for personal ambition. He said, I think personal ambition is what's killing the church. Mm. And, um, and when I hear him say that, I'm like, yeah, I, I can feel that because I became acutely aware of that when I was a freshman in, in college and found myself jealous over another person's usefulness to God, more jealous over 
God using them than I was excited over the fact that these kids were being saved. Something's mm -hmm. really twisted in the human heart. Yeah. And so if I didn't get free from that early on, and I didn't get free from it early on, mm -hmm. um, but that it turns a ministry sour pretty quickly. Yeah, it, the, some of the best advice I ever got uh, from a college professor. We were, I, I went to a, I say we, because I have a twin. So I always accidentally say we and half people don't even know I have a twin. And they're like, who's we? Am I a schizophrenic? <laughs> Me and my twin uh, went to this uh, Bible college in Pennsylvania. And there was this legendary professor there. I don't know how our little school got this guy, but he could speak like 23 languages fluently and including Mandarin Chinese. And he was like the Hebrew guru. And his, his uh, parsing book was used at Ohio State and all over the world. He, he preached in chapel one day. And he preached on Balaam and Balaam's donkey, except he didn't say donkey. And right. we're at yeah. this really conservative G-A-R-B-C school. And, and that's why I still remember to this day, uh, because he, he talked about Balaam and Balaam's donkey to a room full of all these, all these young bucks with all kinds of ambition. We were going to be used by God. We were going to go change the world. We we're going to be the next Billy Graham and on and on and on it goes. And this guy gets up there and he looks like he's, you know, he's just a frail man. And, and he tells the story of Balaam and his donkey. And if you've never heard this story before, there's, a, there's this prophet who uh, God tells to send a message. He never sends the message. And finally, uh, you know, there's this angel blocking him and, and, and Balaam's donkey starts talking. So it's a really strange story and humorous story. And go look it up and read it. I can't even remember exactly where it is in the Old Testament. But he tells this story. And then he looks at us and he points his, his bony finger at us. And he says, don't think it's amazing that God wants to use you. God will use an ass if he needs to. Be amazed that God loves you and rest in that. Mm -hmm. And I remember just sitting there thinking like, holy cow, that is what I needed to hear. And I still have to preach that to myself daily. But what if we could rest in this is my son with whom I am well pleased? and just be blown away by the fact that God loves us. Yeah. That we have been approved in his courtroom. <laughs> and then what if we work from that? that that's, that's what Jesus wanted to show us. And that's why it's so much better. It, it frees us to love. It frees us to serve. It frees us to live out the great commandment, the great commission. It frees us to work uh, without this bondage of always trying to impress and mm -hmm labor for the applause of people and uh yeah it just it sets us free from the chains of an endless cycle of of chasing glory that comes from men yeah you know your story you told about that chapel runs it's it's kind of what jesus said in luke 10 when he sends the disciples out they come back had incredibly fruitful ministry they're rejoicing and then jesus says don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you but rejoice that your names are written in heaven mm. That idea of, hey, don't let the fruit of your ministry be the motivation for your ministry. Um, let your motivation for ministry, your greatest joy, let your greatest joy not come from being used by God, but let, her, let your greatest joy come from being known by God. Mm -hmm. That God's more concerned about your relationship with him than your usefulness to him. Mm -hmm. And when you can really find the, your deepest joy in the fact that God sees you and he knows you and he loves you and he's written your name in his book and engraved your name in the palms of his hands, mm. then you don't need successful ministry to feel good about yourself. And you don't need successful ministry to keep you motivated to do ministry and to love people.
You're doing it because you've got a God that loves you, that approves of you, that sings over you. That's an amazing thought that he rejoices over us with singing. So the more we can get in touch with God's verdict over our life, the less we'll live for other people's verdicts over our life. And then when we're free from needing a good verdict, their verdict over our life, then we're actually free to love them and serve them in ways that sometimes can be a bit challenging. Yeah. In this, there's this, it almost seems like a selfish desire for, for praise and approval and applause. And we've seen that it's not, it's given to us by God. It's from the garden, but how is this reconciled with self-forgetfulness? As you already mentioned Keller's book of self self-forgetfulness and you look at Jesus the way that he is talked about in the gospel of John of like, I am nothing. I do nothing on my own. My doctrine is not my own. And Andrew Murray talked a ton about that in his book, humility of this, uh, the nothingness of Christ and that he viewed himself as not having a glory of his own. And so how, how does our desire for glory and, and this, like this natural instinct to chase it and that it's actually a good thing. It's a God given thing. How does that go hand in hand with self forgetfulness? Yeah, I, you know, the, the thing about Jesus, it's in John 12, where he says, now the Son of Man uh, is going to be glorified. But how's he going to be glorified? He's going to be glorified by doing what the Father called him to do and glorifying the Father. So the, the point I make in the book is just that when you, uh, when, when the glory of God becomes really great in your mind, uh, when you begin to see his glory, his greatness, you start living for a glory greater than your own. And so it's not so much about um, me walking around uh, thinking, boy, I'm really special to God, but it's me walking around going, uh, this God to whom I am special is a glorious, glorious God. There's no one like him. The greatest glory I could live for is his glory. In fact, the greatest thing that would bring me glory in the end is to glorify him. Uh, that's the greatest thing I could do with my life is to live for his glory. So if I can be smitten with his glory, enamored with his glory, then I start to lose sight of my own so much. Mm. Um, so there is this sense where the gospel cures our glory hunger and at the same time gives us a God infinitely glorious whose glory now we can live for. Paul said the Gentiles will glorify God for his mercy. So they don't strut around going, hey, we got mercy. They strut around going, God is merciful. We're the recipients of that mercy. So the gospel cures us from our, our ache for glory because it bestows on us a glory we could never achieve on our own. And at the same time brings us into a relationship with a glorious God whose glory becomes so great to us that we forget about our own. So I think that that as we mature spiritually, we think a lot less of our glory and opinions, and we think more about the glorious God and just, what can I do to bring glory to his name? What can I do to honor him? What can I do to live for the glorious God and the glory that's coming for those who live for the glorious God? Well, guys, I hope that that was as encouraging and enlightening for you as it was for me, um, if you want to pick up Glory Hunger, I'll have the link in the show notes, and I would highly recommend you picking it up and checking it out because there's so much more in there that we didn't even have time to get into. But thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Um, if it was helpful, please like, subscribe, share, review. 
this podcast, uh, that would be really awesome and I would really appreciate it. But ultimately, I hope that as a result of this time that we all take another step into the good life that Jesus came to invite us into, that we'll move from a place of merely living and surviving into a place of flourishing and thriving, and that we will know what it means to live life and life to the fullest. Thanks again for being here. We'll see you again in two weeks.